Well, what a summer so far, right? We have had some incredible speakers come through, and it's, it's always so fun. This, it may sound weird, but when it first started, and it was like, man, we're going we're gonna to have Jamie away for 12 weeks, I kind of went, ooh, that's a long time. And I've been just so blessed by every guy that's come through, from, from Kruckenberg, Clausen, we had Loritz, I'm going to miss somebody in here, but Kevin Butcher, then we had the usual suspects, we got Tim, we got Lucas, we got Daryl, we got Schrader, we got me, right? I mean, it's just been like, wow, it's just been fun. So I'm excited about, uh, you guys will get me for three weeks, so you'll have me today in here, and you'll have me for two next weeks. Ended up being wildly self-serving, um, but it'll be really fun. Uh, I'm going to unpack some of my favorite messages over the next two weeks, and I've, I just couldn't be more excited to do that. But today we're going to dive into kind of a passion place of mine. This sermon's entitled, Affections for the World. And I think there's a lot of areas where we can get hung up and we start to love the world. And some of them are seen, some of them are kind of gray areas, and some of them, I would argue today, are completely invisible to us at times. Because the enemy's so good at kind of closely aligning his will with God's will, but it's just a vector off, and the next thing you know, you've walked it out over a lifetime in the wrong direction. And so I've got some examples, and I, I, there's a passage today we're going to dive into. It's just three simple verses out of, out of 1 John 2, but they're just rich. They're really, really good. We're going to unpack half a verse for about 15 or so minutes because it's just so dense. And so we're going to do that, and I'm really excited. So with that, this is 1 John 2, 15 through 17. They're up here on the screen, and we can read them. Uh, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is one of those verses, and I say this before, there's some verses in the Bible that are sort of tough to reconcile. They're sort of hard. And this one, boy, leads off with a real punch in the gut, doesn't it? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Whew. Man, that's got some heat on it, doesn't it? Like that's one of those you, you kind of got to sort through a little bit. And so I want to unpack just this first part of 15 for a second here. It says, do not love the world or the things of the world. What does that mean? Because that's really hard, isn't it? Like what does John, our author, mean here by do not love the world? What's the world? And commentators are, are unanimous on two things, what it's not and what it is. Everybody says the same thing. I peeled through like five or six commentaries this week just going, what is it not and what is it? What it's not is God's creation. The Bible doesn't contradict itself, okay? So when it says, do not love the world, it doesn't mean what God created. In Genesis, he called that good, right? He created the world and he said it was good, it was good, it was good. It's when sin entered that things got messy, right? So it's not God's created world, and it's not people, okay? Because that's contradictory too. That's like attacks the complete heart of the gospel. This verse is not saying, hey, don't love people. That doesn't make any sense. What every commentator says is that what John means with the Greek word cosmos here, which is his word for world or universe, is the order or the system of the world, okay? 
Now, the way I want you to think about that today, because this makes the most sense for the way this verse ties itself up in verse 17, is the will of the world. Don't love the will of the world or what the world is leading you to. Think about this for just a second. This world's in a fallen state, right? Who's the ruler of the earth? Say the enemy. We write, good, thank you. We're gonna get really responsive here. This is gonna be tons of fun. The enemy is, we read that in the scriptures. Who's the ruler of the earth? The prince of the air. It's this enemy figure, the fallen one. And so when we sit back and we think about this, we've gotta connect the dots to what it's saying. Don't love the world, the system or the will of the world of which the enemy is the one who he's, he's propagating all of that. He's the one saying, listen, I got a better thing. This goes back to the garden, right? Hey, I got a better thing for you. Just try my way. His of the world. It's a broken system. It's a worldly will or a worldly order. And the root issue that I want to dive into today is the affections that we as human beings can attach to the wrong will for our lives, to a worldly will as opposed to a godly will. <clears throat> now, I think this can happen really in two ways. It can happen with bad things and it can happen with good things. And I'm gonna get real specific on what some of those are in a minute, but give you the general 10,000 foot category. It can happen with bad things. Like there's sin issues that we just go, yeah, that's not best for your life. Let's just leave that alone. It's a bad thing. It's a no brainer. And yet there's good things too that can get out of whack and the enemy comes in to try to get you to kind of listen to his will over God's. I'll use an example here. Let's say that you're, just, you're designed as a discerning person. Okay? Many of you in this room right now are discerning people. God's given you a gift. You look at stuff in business or relationships or anything, and you just sort of go, I got kind of a bead on what's going on there. That's the way the Lord's wired you. That's a huge blessing. But the enemy works in two ways, people. He either wants to diminish or augment. He wants to take everything in your life and throw it out of whack. He wants to either take a discernment gift and diminish it, and this is what it'll sound like. I can't think. I don't have a good mind. Nobody wants to listen to me, so I'm just not going to speak up. And the body of Christ gets robbed from your discernment gift because it's not being shared because the enemy has convinced you and diminished your gift to where it will not be used. Okay? That's diminishment. Okay? What about augmenting? You become so high on your own ability to be right that you're so arrogant, nobody wants to hear from you even if you're right. We don't, nobody knows anybody like that, right? <laughs> Augment. What the enemy doesn't want is he does not want that gift of discernment operating in perfect balance, humbly submitted to the will of God. So his will is to diminish or to augment, to get it out of the game, either through silence or through just this bold, brash presentation that nobody wants to be a part of. He doesn't want submitted people in the understanding and the will of God. So that's part of his deal. This is my second point on this little passage here. Point two. Uh, when I got into AA, all right, they told me something really powerful. They said, Rustin, anything you put before your sobriety, you're going to lose. I was like, well, what? okay. But I got a lot of things in my life. I mean, sobriety is sort of new to me, and I don't really know what to do with that. They said, well, anything you put ahead of your sobriety, you're going to lose. And they walked me through it, and they went, okay, let's just say you put your marriage ahead of sobriety, which was kind of a touchy subject because Jamie and I weren't on great terms when I got sober. That might shock some of you, but that, that was very true for me. He said, anything you put ahead of your sobriety, you'll lose. If you decide that your wife is more important than your sobriety, 
you're going to start drinking again and you're going to end up losing your wife. And I went, that's totally true. And so, and here's what I, again, a little education on AA real quick. At the heart of AA is a spiritual pursuit, okay? So in essence, when they're saying pursue your sobriety, they're saying pursue God. So just so some of you go, well, that sounds totally out of whack. It's not. It's perfectly in alignment with where I want to take you today, which is to say the same thing is true of your relationship with Christ. Anything that you put ahead of Christ, you're going to lose. It's sort of like if at the end of this stage is Christ. He stands right here on this stage, and everything else is designed to be submitted further back on the stage unto him. Well, if I try and take something and push it out ahead of him, it just falls off the stage, doesn't it? He is the supreme place in my life. Nothing can go past him. And if it does, it falls out of alignment with his perfect plan for my life. Now, let's get some real practical examples here because some of these are no-brainers. When I first read this verse, do not love the world or the things of the world, what do you think of, church? Material things, right? Like the cash, the cars, the cribs, like the three C's of material things. It's like the cash, cars, and cribs. That's what we all want. Okay, those are no-brainers. We, we see it over and over again. Corporate America is so good at this, right? Hey, some guy puts success ahead of things, and what ends up happening? He's got some of it, but his divorce took the other half. His kids are coming after the, the other half, and it's all falling apart because he pushed material things ahead of a relationship with God. So those material things couldn't serve him in a way that was responsible because he lost them. Material things, that's like a, that's a no-brainer, right? Everyone sees that one. But here's why I want to preach this message today. Most of us stop there. We sort of go, yeah, okay, material things. That's all I got to worry about. What about this? This is a gray area, relationships. What about family? What about spouses? What about kids? Okay? This happens all the time. Family is messy, that's why half of us need a vacation when we come out of Christmas, right? They all came home. It's just like Christmas vacation. You got that crazy uncle that's all over the place. It's just, it's nutty, and we need a break. Why? Because at times, fallen people whom we love and are related to are sort of on our throne, aren't they? Mom is still trying to run our life, even though we may be in our 30s or 40s. And if we have a fear of man issue, mom still has a way heavy voice, what we should do is have Christ on our throne and start to work with godly counsel and wisdom to work on boundaries. That's healthy. And we still honor our parents, but we put boundaries in place, right? But if that gets out of alignment, what happens? We got like 30, 40, 50 year old kids who are still terrified of their parents. And the Lord wants to restore that. That's the hope of it, right? Okay, what about spouses? Well, I just told you my story, but it happens all the time. Okay, I'm going to baptize a guy next hour. He's going to share his testimony, so it's going to be public in about, you know, 60 minutes. Didn't know the Lord. His wife did. Well, oh, my gosh, what happens? Well, how does she still submit and love and respect her husband and still love Jesus first? Well, the Bible accounts for that. That's 1 Peter 3. Wives, if you have unbelieving husbands, win them without a word but with your conduct. And he will share a story next hour about how that's how he got saved. His wife showed up. She didn't say Jesus, she was Jesus to her home. And next hour, he'll tell everybody, I got to a point where I wasn't totally on board with Christ just yet, but I looked at my wife while I was still very much an unbeliever and said, I don't know about this Jesus thing, but I sure am glad you brought him into our home. God's word accounts for all these things. 
Okay, go further. What about kids? Oh, this is hard, isn't it? Parents in the room, is this hard? We want to shove our kids out to the most predominant place in our life. But the problem is if our kids get ahead of our love for Christ and our kids end up on the throne, we're so worried about their happiness or the sustainability of our relationship with them, we end up being their friend and we don't end up being their parents. This happens all the time. I see this in broken homes and perceivably healthy homes. There are two people on this planet who have been chosen to be your kids' parents. They will have thousands of friends. Do not give up a job that thousands will hold to give up something that only two can have. Your kids need their parents. You will end up being their friend in the long term if you do a great job being their parent. You get both. Why? Because it's submitted to God's order. Christ is still on the throne. Your kids are not. Their happiness is not predominant. Their obedience to Christ and to you is the most important thing which flows into beautiful relationship. It may not be right now. They may not love you now. I got a six-year-old that thinks she's 16, running my world, telling me all about my life. We were joking yesterday. I'm going to have to get better about this as she gets older, but we were joking yesterday. My wife's in the back of the room, so I'm laughing right now. She's six years old. She looks at me and she goes, nothing I can ever do is good enough for you, and then storms out of the room, and I'm like... I just looked at my wife. I was like, I thought we had more time. I thought we had more time. I can't let that run my world, right? I, I got to go back and graciously and lovingly be her dad, not be her friend. And let her know, like, sweetie, you can't act that way. Sure enough, in the pool about an hour later, she goes, hey, I really see I shouldn't have, shouldn't have acted that way. I said, do you know what she did? She goes, yeah, I do. I said, okay, I love you. We're all right. Let's go to the invisible category. What about the good things, right? First category, duh. Relationships, gray area, hard to discern. What about the good things? What about morals? This is invisible to a lot of us as Christians. See, because morals, when they're unchecked to Christ, we get into moralism and moralizing. Can you be a really moral person and not know Jesus? Yeah. Anybody know any of them? Yeah. You see, a really moral person gets so wrapped up in something that is a good thing. Are morals good? Everyone say yes. Right? They're kind of at the heart of righteousness, aren't they? We continue to pursue a righteous life in Christ. Morals are sort of all a part of that. And yet, here's what happens so many times. People start to shove morals out there ahead of Jesus. And what I want to submit to you today is that is a stop short of being a Christ follower. You become so obsessed with sterilizing your life that you start pushing sin further and further away. Then you kind of become convinced that you're doing pretty good. So you start calling people out left and right. I saw him smoke a cigar once. That one over there was, was, was drinking last night. This one over here went to an R-rated movie. Get them out of here. We become the righteous judge we become so obsessed with sterilizing our environment that we can't do something really important. We can't love God with all our heart because our morals are actually what we're worshiping and we cannot love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And we know from the scriptures that the law and the prophets, the Old Testament and the New Testament, both hang on that very command. I have people coming to me right now, church, asking me if they are allowed to love. Why is this happening? 
Why are God-fearing Christians coming to me and their friend has a sin issue and they're saying, is it okay that I love into this area? Christians are asking me as their pastor permission to go fulfill the greatest commandment. Why? Because for so many morals are on the throne and Christ is not. You see, if you serve Christ, you can still be a moral person. You can pursue righteousness, but you can also go and do the greatest commandment. A moral person says, sterilize my environment, get sin away from me. A Christian loves extravagantly into scary places. You see, a Christian comes in and says, I want to go love that person who has a drinking problem. A moral person says, I'm afraid that people will think I have a drinking problem. Do you know what Jesus says to that? Oh, that's okay. They did that to me too. I was accused of being a drunk because I hung out with them. I was accused of being the sinner of all sinners because I was around prostitutes and broken people. You see, I didn't come to help the healthy. I came because the sick need a doctor. Do you see the difference? Morality, moralism, moralizing is a stop short of a true Christ follower. One of my biggest problems right now in the church in general is we're so hard on overt sin issues and we let sometimes religion and legalism go completely unchecked. And as a pastor today, I've had enough. I think it is just as unloving for me to leave someone stuck in legalism and religion as it is for me to leave someone stuck in an addiction, stuck in an affair, and them thinking this is fine or this is okay for me. No, it's not. It's breaking your heart. And oh, by the way, so are these things over here that you think are awesome that are absolutely spiritual cancer. We got to talk about it all, don't we, church? We got to talk about all the things that are tough. But the bottom line is, when you come down to the world, the real question is, what is it that captivates your heart ahead of Christ? Because the second part of verse 15 says this. Because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Let's run with this metaphor for just a second longer. Lucas Cooper, who's a dear friend of mine, both of us were on our way to Payson, and he was going to preach at a college retreat that I was the pastor of. So we were on our way up there and he told me a story and it went like this. He said, Rustin, I want you to envision for just a second, a woman goes to the doctor. She's in great shape. The doctor says he's got something that's gonna put her over the top. It's a drug called carboplatin. She takes it, she gets sick. She takes it again, her hair falls out. She takes it a third time, her hair falls out completely so she stops taking it. All of her hair comes back and things go back to usual except six months later, she dies. You see, carboplatin is a form of chemotherapy. The woman who, had she continued to take it, would have recovered. He said, but what the doctor failed to tell her was that the woman had ovarian cancer. She didn't know what was wrong with her. So she saw the side effects and said, enough is enough. Lucas went on to tell me this. He said, that woman was my mom. Except unlike the woman in this story, she knew what was wrong with her. So she's alive and well today. You see, the reality for my mom was that she knew she was sick, and so despite the painful side effects of carboplatin, she took it, and she recovered. Church, my reality for you today is what this verse is honing in on, is that the love of the world is a distraction. That, that there's this cancer that's almost invisible in your spiritual life at times. It's this longing for the world and its things and I am an oncologist that gives nothing but good news if I stand up here today and tell you everything is fine. 
all is well. Go to sleep, sweet church. You'll be okay in the morning. You see, because the real hope of the gospel is come as you are, but don't stay as you are. That's the message of the church. The problem right now is culture screaming, you can't ask me to change. And I say, that's fine. But just let me know what's wrong. Right? You just approach the question differently. <laughs> it's just a bait and switch in some ways, right? But it's so loving because it's like, yes, the message of the church has come as you are, but it's not stay as you are because you came here for a reason. People do this all the time. They walk in and they go, I'm really broken. This is really hard. I don't want to be sitting back telling people everything's fine when they're telling me they have problems, when they're telling me their heart is broken and they're hurting. This is a tough pill to swallow, but Matthew 6, 24 says this, no one can serve two masters. You just can't. You can't go in two directions. You can't love the world and love God. And I think, and, and I'll tell you this, some commentators apply this verse too rigidly for me. Okay, some commentators say this, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If you still love the world, then you're not saved. I got bad news for you, church. Your pastor might not be saved if that's true. <laughs> we all love the world, but the process of what sanctification is, that lifelong process of Christ making me look more like him, is that he's continually going, hey, this isn't good for you. This affection needs to come over here. Realign it with me. Realign it with me. Realign it with me. It's the lifelong process of him showing me where I'm still in love with the world. That's why you hear 80-year-old guys, like men of God who just love Jesus, women of God who have been head over heels in love with the Savior going, I'm still learning at 80. What are you learning? You've had 80 years. And they're like, he's still, he's detaching me from affections that didn't belong to him. Now, most of the time when they say that stuff, I'm like, good grief. If that was the biggest problem in my life, I would be absolutely set. But it's still, they're deeply in love with Jesus and he's unhitching their wagon and putting it back on him. This is wonderful. Um, we got a quote right here that I'm gonna read for you guys. It's by Colin Cruz and it says this, love is not an uncontrollable emotion but rather a steady devotion of the will. Oh, this is such a wonderfully corrective teaching on love. Our society is so saturated in love in such a broken way that they say this, couples come to me, Hey, we just got divorced. Why? I thought you guys were doing great. We fell out of love. It's like it's the flu. <laughs> like they're sitting there and they're standing there going, oh, love, oh, do you have it? Do you have love? Can I lick your cup real quick? Might I catch it again? It's like that's not how it works. It's a steady devotion of the will. This is how marriage survives. Marriages don't survive because people caught the flu of love. That's called infatuation. And it comes and goes. It's a fickle friend. Infatuation will sit back and say, ooh, she is looking good. I'll tell you this. When we got married, Jamie can, <laughs> Jamie can attest to this in the back of the room. When we got married, I kind of thought, I'm almost embarrassed to say this, which is crazy. This is a long time ago. I pretty much thought Jamie was going to follow me around and tell me I was awesome. <laughs> I was 25. I was an idiot. Like, that's really what I thought. I thought that she was just like, this chick's super hot. She's going to follow me around. Just tell me I'm awesome. I'll probably do that for her when it works. That ship didn't make it out of the harbor. That thing sunk before we set sail. You don't think I'm awesome? I don't know. I'm drinking myself to sleep every night. This seems like a pretty good deal for you. No, it's a mess. This is why we're still married today. Through all of our turmoil and all of our, our stuff, 
We're still married today because we've discovered that it's a steady devotion of the will that's actually love. Kimmel said it best, right? Love is the sacrificing of self to the benefit of another. I give of me that she might have. She gives of her so that I might have. And we continue to grow. Marriage at its heart is change. But what do people think? They think they're going to get married. They think they're going to roll in and just go, yeah, you know what? This is great. She loves me for who I am. I love her for who she is. We'll never need to change. Well, no, right? Tim Keller's got a great metaphor for marriage. Your life is a bridge. Marriage is a 10-ton truck. When it drives upon it, it shows the stress fractures of the place where the metal is weak. You have a choice, fix it or collapse. Marriage at its heart is designed to change. Love at its heart is sacrifice, a devotion of the will. The reality is that when we align our wills to God, his will for us can function. It's the beautiful part of that. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. Right when I got into ministry, I'm super blessed. Wayne Grudem is my seminary mentor. And I know what a lot of you are thinking. Rustin, you dropped a name over there. I did. He's a great man of God, and I get to sit with him all the time. He told me this right when I was early, early into ministry. He said, Rustin, pastors fall victim to the three Gs. It's gold, girls, and glory. I was like, that's brilliant. That's so concise. He's a smart guy. What, uh, what he was pointing at that day is a perfect mirroring of what this verse is talking about. Gold, what's he talking about? Some sort of financial misstep. Guys get kicked out of ministry because they went after money and somehow or another it was improper. Girls, some sort of sexual immorality or glory. They just want to be on the throne. That works so well with our passage today. Desires of the flesh, gold. Desires of the eyes, girls. Pride of life, glory. It's the things that we long for. What John's doing here is he's putting a fine point on this and saying, these things, these things are not from the Father, but from the world. You see, the reality these aren't from the Father is so important because you're designed to run on something so much more potent, so much more nourishing than the things of the world and the way that they break down. It's not enough. You see, the gold, the girls, and the glory of life, it's junk food for your spiritualness. Like your spiritual life can't run on it because it's not enough. John Piper said something uh, last, not this summer, but before. And I was in Poland and he was teaching through Philippians every morning for an hour. It was just him. No, I'm just kidding. It wasn't just him and me. It was 700 ministry leaders in this room at the European Leadership Forum. And he sat there and at one point he said, do you know why selfish ambition is so abhorrent to God? And I was sitting there and I'm like, well, yeah, it's sin and it's this and But he said this, he said, no, it's literally drawing someone's attention away from the very thing that their soul needs the most, him. Church, that rocked me to my core. It completely changed the way I thought about ministry because what I started to realize was if I'm up here for my own selfish ambition, if this becomes the Rustin show and I'm saying, look at me, look at me, I am drawing hurting, broken people away from the very thing they need the most, Jesus Christ. And it shook me, and it shook the room. And my ministry model is different now. It's me saying, listen, uh, come in, but don't get distracted with me. Don't get lost in this. This will not help you. This will not save you. Don't get lost in presentation or words or jokes. Look up here. Go there. 
He's designed to love you the way you need to be loved. I am nothing more than a broken person saying, I found something over here. Will you follow me? And this happens all the time. People come into the venue over and over and over again, just radically broken. And I get to do that with them. The last part is 17 where we're kind of hearing this. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is where John goes, guys, I know this is hard, but it's not forever. This is temporal. It won't last forever. Neither will the things of the world. It's a victory statement. This will get conquered eventually. He's on it. He's on the job. He's just winning this war one soul at a time. Two words I want to hone in on is, but whoever does the will of God. In the beginning, we kind of defined the will of the world as something else, right? It's the enemy's will versus, look at that in 17, God's will. This is what's warring for your attention and your affections. This is it. It's where the enemy is saying, come and do this. Come partake in the junk food of life. Come hear the message from your oncologist that you're fine. And the Bible's screaming, no, no, no. There's a sickness inside you. I have the cure. You're miserable because your affections are going in the wrong direction. And you're not getting anything back in that relationship. But the will of God has a plan. And when the things of our life are submitted to him, it works. And the last word here as we start to close with this is the word abide. Who wrote the gospel of John? Say, John, that's so good. Gosh, you guys would ace seminary. It's basically that. John did, who wrote 1 John. John. You see, in 1 John, in John 15, there's this beautiful metaphor of a vine. I've preached on it before in here. It's the vine, which is Christ. It's the branches, which is us as his children. And it's God who bears fruit through the branches, which is his people. Fruit is bared through abiding, which is this big word in that metaphor, in the vine. It's by being in God. And the beauty of what's happening here is that John, our author, is importing an entire metaphor from the gospel in just one word. He's just going, hey, look, this is what it is. This is what it's all about. It's about being with him. It's about knowing that his will is so good for your life that regardless of whether there's a carboplatin experience, you still trust him because it's restorative. You still walk with him because it's important and you know it's best for your soul because you're done with spiritual cancer because you're turning and you're walking to a new life and church that's really what I want to leave you with today as we talk about our application question which is going to pop up on the screen there it is All right. what stands between you and a completely 100% sold out relationship with Christ what is it what are the things that keep you from abandoning it all because like I talked about, I, I think God's grace covers all the things that we're doing right now that we don't really know we're doing, the invisible parts, right? God's grace covers that until we're ready to walk through it. But once he's made you aware, this question applies. What is it in your life that you're aware of right now that you're just not ready to give up? You're locked around and you've got such a grip on that you go, no, no, it's better for me this way. Stop. Give it up. Take the carboplatin. Take the bad side effects of what needs to be restored. It won't be easy. It will be worth it. And let it go so that he might have all of you right here and right now. 
the wonderful place where we're going right now is that we're going to baptism. This is what I love about baptism. And this is, this is so sweet. I love the ignorance of baptism. I love that people are about to get in this tank. They're about to read their testimonies. And they're about to essentially say this. This is, if, if all baptisms were, were just these three things, one, we'd be able to do a lot more baptisms logistically, but two, we could sit back and just kind of hear the beauty of everyone's uh, similarity and how they come to Christ. If it were their name, a statement of who their savior is and the statement of I'm all in, that's all I need to know. Your story is just the specificity of how you got to that conclusion. But it's the beauty of basically someone saying, I'm all in. That's radically ignorant, isn't it? That is one of the most faithful statements in the world is that you would stand back and say, I'm all in. You don't even know what all in looks like. What you're really saying is that I trust you beyond what I trust myself. I trust that what you're going to do in my life is so beautiful, so wonderful that I won't question it and I will submit everything to you. My possessions, my passions, my pleasures, every category is yours and we will work them out together over time. That's ignorant today. Now I got some of the people who are being baptized going, I don't know if I'm in for all that. You are and you're gonna do great. We've all been there. That's why we cheer so loud when we do baptism. That's why we don't go, oh, that was great, cool story. We go, you know what? I know what you're in for and you already kind of know what you're in for. We just don't know what it looks like, but we're all gonna do it together. As a family, we're gonna step back and say, we're gonna do life together. Derek and the band are gonna lead you right now as we sort of prepare our hearts for this. And so I just want you to kind of wrap your heads around that. If you're being baptized today, I'm excited. I'll be back in just a minute to do that with you. But at the same time, all of us in this room, let's get our hearts in the place to really celebrate what it is that God's about to do through all of our friends here as they publicly declare their faith in him.